Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Gorda. It's Thursday, July 20th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. BridgeBio is a small biotech company with what could end up being a very big drug. CEO Neil Kumar joins us to talk about his company's momentous week and the value of studying the classics. We'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences. All that after a word from our sponsor. Hey there, my name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter here at STAT, and I host our health equity podcast called Color Code. Our second season started airing this spring, and in it, we're taking things local to my hometown of Long Island. Where you live has a huge impact on your health, and Long Island is a microcosm of racial health disparities that exist in suburbs across the country. We've spoken to families and to advocates about how they grapple with issues like environmental racism, segregation, and food deserts. We've heard from scientists and researchers about how redlining of the suburbs continues to create health disparities seen today. And I've explored the ways that racism has impacted my own childhood growing up here. Episodes air every other week through the rest of the summer. Racism in medicine is a national emergency. Together, let's raise the alarm. So, Megan, I know you've been following uh, this tornado in North Carolina, which uh, heavily damaged a, a Pfizer manufacturing plant. Yeah, this is pretty crazy. If you if you look at the pictures of this, this tornado just ripped through this massive manufacturing plant uh, that Pfizer has down there that I, I believe they got in the acquisition of Hospira that they did in 2015. So they say this is one of the largest plants in the world making sterile injectable medicines, which of course we know are extremely important, uh, especially for use in hospitals. They say this one plant supplies 25% of all uh, sterile injectable medicines used in U.S. hospitals. Um, and so we don't yet know the the impact from this destruction. Uh, if you look at the photos, it, it really like just ripped through part of this facility, but it is a massive facility. And so it could have just hit a warehouse part, which would affect inventory, but not necessarily disrupt manufacturing over the longer term. The concern that a lot of people I've been talking with have is that this could exacerbate an already extremely bad situation for drug shortages. Um the company hasn't disclosed which medicines specifically are made at this plant, uh, but it does say uh, in a fact sheet about the plant that it makes things uh, like anesthesia, uh, analgesics, um, anti-infectives, uh, all kinds of things that are particularly used in hospitals. Um, and so there's just a lot of concern about what this uh, could potentially mean for, for drug shortages more broadly. And we expect to get more details, I think, in the coming days. Um, the company does say, fortunately, you know, the people working there were able to evacuate and everybody is safe and accounted for. 
You know, and I think a lot of people are sort of hearkening back to Hurricane Maria in 2017 when they think of something like this happening. And uh, of course, that, you know, affected a lot of the manufacturing in Puerto Rico um, and led to or exacerbated a, a shortage of IV saline that went on for a long time. So there are concerns about these natural disasters and their impacts on drug manufacturing and also the fact that, you know, there isn't visibility into what is made where exactly. And so we don't always know what the impact is going to be. And things are already so tight in terms of manufacturing and so bad in terms of shortages, there's a lot of concern about what what will happen here. But we do expect to learn more soon. So the other big news of the week, uh, Damien, was the, uh, I guess, a surprise resignation of Stanford uh, President uh, Mark Tessier Levine. Uh, tell us more about that. Yeah, or at least abrupt. Um, we got the results uh, this week of an internal investigation conducted by Stanford into years and years of academic work. Um, from Mark Tessier-Levine's lab. And this followed allegations of academic misconduct um, over a series of papers, uh, including, well, just throughout his his career. And so there's been a lot of reporting on this, first surfaced by the, the Stanford University uh, student newspaper, but ongoing since then. And our own uh, colleague, Jonathan Wozen, has done a lot of great work on digging into just what happened here. So what happened on the same day this week is that Stanford put out a roughly 100-page report on what it had found after commissioning a scientific panel, which concluded that Tessie Levine did not personally engage in research misconduct for any of the its 12 papers about which these allegations were raised. But they noted, quote, several of these papers do exhibit manipulation of research data. And at multiple points throughout his career, Tessie Levine, quote, failed to decisively and forthrightly correct mistakes in the scientific record. So he was, Tessie Levine was informed of uh, this report I guess, in the days before it was made public and made the decision to resign from his position as president of the university, saying, quote, although the report clearly refutes the allegations of fraud and misconduct that were made against me for the good of the university, I have made the decision to step down. So it's kind of I feel like the conversation moving forward, and I'm cribbing this from some of Jonathan's writing as well, is I guess similar to conversations we've had in the past about like, quote unquote, big science, about what it exactly means um, when, you know, a base scientific celebrity has a lab, but also is co-founder of company X and on the advisory board of company Y and on the board of company Z, it's like, what is the, what does the actual scientific work done at their lab mean with relation to their name being put on it? And so with this investigation, basically Stanford concluded that a bunch of shenanigans took place that were bad and there was no evidence implicating Tessier Levine in them. But of course, his name went on the papers in the end, regardless. And so, uh, you know, one takeaway I've seen out there is that this is a cautionary tale for these big name scientists who, you know, we all kind of know, don't really do the labor uh, in the labs that bear their names because there isn't enough time in the day or for whatever reason. But as the Tessie Levine story illustrates, they will bear the consequences if the labor that is done under their banner is problematic. Yeah, this whole story, you know, it's been playing out for some time uh, with the reporting from, you know, Stanford student paper, which is just sort of a remarkable part of this whole thing. Um, but and so, you know, the, the news itself maybe perhaps wasn't so surprising, although it is a dramatic sort of cap to all of this happening. But um, the fact that this has been happening has been surprising to me just from, you know, hearing about Mark Tissi Levine's 
reputation for so long in the biotech industry as being just a completely sterling one. You know, he he's this like lauded board member of many different drug companies, including currently Regeneron. I think previously he was on Pfizer's board. You know, he he's a sought after person uh, in terms of those roles. And it's just surprising to see something like this happen. Yeah, he, I mean, he was maybe most well known for, uh, you know, the role he played at Genentech. You know, which kind of spearheaded a lot of their a lot of their work in neuroscience and uh, including, you know, the development of, or the, the attempted development of drugs for Alzheimer's. Speaking of Alzheimer's, the other news we got, uh, maybe not in this calendar week, but at least in the week since last we recorded a podcast, which was the detailed presentation or the presentation of detailed data, rather, uh, by Eli Lilly related to Denanumab, its treatment for Alzheimer's disease. Adam, you were plugged into that. What did we learn or not learn this week? Um, we did learn a lot new, Damien. Uh, you know, the results had been pre-announced back in May. Uh, you know, obviously the drug slows the the rate of progress of or the cognitive decline and function in in people with early stage Alzheimer's. And as we know, these these drugs are associated with uh, that side effect known as aria, you know, brain swelling and and brain bleeding, uh, including three deaths in the study. So, you know, we heard a lot more about that at the presentation uh, at an Alzheimer's conference. Uh, on Monday, not a ton new. And, you know, and, and Megan, I know you covered this as well for CNN. Uh, you know, we're talking to talking to physicians and, and experts in Alzheimer's, I think, um, you know, you heard a lot of the same things that, you know, there was optimism for this this new era, this new class of, of medicines in Alzheimer's, but also concern and 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 some, you know, questions that remain unanswered about, you know, how you identify these patients and treat them and monitor them for the side effects uh, that are so worrisome. So a lot of it, uh, I think, you know, we'll have to see kind of how these drugs eventually do roll out. Uh, you know, Lily did say that they they submitted denatumab to the FDA uh, and they expect a decision by the end of the year. I think, you know, most people expect denatumab to receive full approval uh, when the FDA does complete its review. And then, you know, then the drug will enter the marketplace and, and it will compete against Lakembi, which, as we all know, is the is the Alzheimer's drug from ASI and Biogen. Yeah, one of the most telling things I feel like to me was that you saw people who were sort of defending the drug come out and have to make the statement like, this is a clinically meaningful result. Like the fact that you just, that's that's your comment is like, there was, so it might not have been a clinically meaningful result. You know, 30, 35% slowing, you know, that's months of, of time potentially for people getting back. But I think what's really potentially exciting, and some people are very excited about this idea, including Eli Lilly, um, is the idea that you could catch people before they show any outward symptoms symptoms, uh, but they do have the plaques in their brains. And you could clear out those plaques before they show symptoms. And Dan Skowronski, the head of research at Lilly, told me he hopes that maybe could prevent the symptoms from starting. So we'll have to see if that happens. They're running these trials for both denanumab and lecanemab. Um, and, and, and that's a big hope, I think. Bridgebio is having a very good week. On Monday, the California-based biotech said that a drug it's developing for patients with a type of progressive heart disease was successful in a late-stage clinical trial. The drug, called Acaramidus, reduced the risk of death and cardiovascular hospitalizations and improved other outcomes compared to a placebo. The positive study results suggest Acaramidus, if approved, could become a blockbuster heart medicine. Since Monday, Bridge Bio's stock price has almost doubled, adding about $2.7 billion in market value. 
And that is quite a turnaround from about 19 months ago when a surprise setback in an earlier stage of the same acaramidus trial threatened the drug's future and sent Bridge Bio stock price plunging. Adam, I just have to appreciate that you literally made each one of us say acaramidus <laughs> in this intro. Acaramidus? That- acaramidus. Well, joining us now to talk about acaramidus and everything else, plus his love of ancient Greek literature, is Bridge Bio CEO Neil Kumar. Uh, Neil, welcome to the Read Out Loud. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. All right, Neil, so we're going to talk about the drug in a minute. But first, we absolutely need to know a little bit more about uh, last Friday when you decided to log into your LinkedIn account and post a short passage from the Odyssey, which, uh, as everybody on this podcast knows, is Homer's epic poem that follows the Greek hero Odysseus and his travels home after the Trojan War. Uh, Neil, your homage to Odysseus triggered quite a quest of its own as investors tried to surmise if you were dropping a big hint about the outcome of the study. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, definitely no no hints there. And and also, I think people are giving me too cre- too much credit for being some sort of a scholar of literature. I, uh, I am an avid reader of the New York Review of Books. And, um, you know, honestly, I think I have like and still, if you go to LinkedIn post, there's like four thumbs up. There's like no one looks at my LinkedIn. I did it for my family because I was planning on having a discussion with my daughters and my wife that morning just about kind of what these long journeys look like, especially in today's world where one doesn't know what the outcome is. I didn't know what the outcome was at that point, um, but more, one is working on something that has a great deal of meaning for them. And that passage in particular, which was from a recent issue, um, struck me. So I posted it and um, I didn't mean for it to be um, almost uh, as visible as the result itself. But um, but there you go. You know, famously, as we all know, biotech is controlled by a Greek mafia um, that calls the shots from behind the scenes. And I was curious, were you, did you get any static from, you know, people of Greek experience for brazenly appropriating Hellenic culture by posting a quote from the Odyssey? I did not. Um, I, I don't have the the privilege of working with um, any of the of the so called uh, Greek leadership in in biotech. But uh, but one cool thing is Daniel Mendelssohn himself, who is the editor at large at New York Review of Books and kind of a literary hero of mine, ended up seeing something. I don't know. I'm not on Twitter, but I, it could have been on Twitter, and he reached out to me, and. Um, it was cool, actually. I, I've always wanted to sit down with him and talk about. See, he has a book called *An Odyssey*, which is a novel that conflates science and a scientific approach to kind of a more literary approach and how we can use all of those to understand the world. Anyway, that was a cool, cool outcome, but I didn't get any any emails from Stelios or uh, Tassos or anyone like that. <laughs> <laughs> when you say Greek leadership, we say Greek mafia, but you know, potato, potato. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm starting to choose my words wisely. Yeah, gotta you know? be careful. <laughs> so let's shift back to the news at hand. As we mentioned, your drug's being developed for patients with a type of progressive heart disease. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so this condition is called ATTR cardiomyopathy. And it's a very nice example of precision medicine as applied to cardiovascular disease. Actually, I got my um, start in my career putting together a company called Myocardia, which was another good example of applying molecular-based uh, biology to a broad-based cardiology. In that case, that was hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In this case, it's ATTR cardiomyopathy, which is about 15% of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. 
And over the course of 35 years, this condition has been very well described. So what happens is you have this highly abundant protein, which is a tetramer that's floating around called transthyretin. And in the context of the disease, that tetramer is destabilized and it falls apart into monomers that effectively clump and deposit in your heart over time or deposit in the peripheral nervous system, which leads to another related disease called ATTR polyneuropathy. So you can broadly think of this as um, Alzheimer's of the heart. We colloquially call it that. And um, people typically have it uh, at a later age of onset, um, somewhere between sort of their their um, late 60s and early 70s. And um, unfortunately, uh, it can it can strike with devastating consequence. And you can see from our clinical trial uh, and others that the uh, 30 month survival rates uh, are well under what you would naturally predict. Um, and uh, hospitalization rates and quality of life um, decline very dramatically as well. So that's the disease at large. So yeah, colloquially, the Alzheimer's of the heart, these proteins misfold and clump up there. How does acaramidus work? Where does it interject in that process to, to treat the disease? Yeah, so what's really um, quite interesting about the disease, I mentioned 30 years of research, um, Sue Linquist, who many of you know, and Jeff Kelly, uh, out of Scripps, had done a lot of work effectively showing the following, which is there are 140 mutations or so that drive um, the variant condition uh, of this disease. And every time you have a more destabilizing mutation, you end up having a more pathogenic presentation of the disease. So every time effectively you're more destabilizing that tetramer and you're creating more of that toxic monomer that's depositing in the heart, you're worse off. And it turns out that there's a subset of patients that are walking around that should be sick. They have the pathogenic variant, but are not. And for those patients, they actually have what's called a transallelic transoppressor mutation or what we also call a rescue mutation. And what that rescue mutation is doing is it's hyperstabilizing the destabilized tetramer. So it's effectively targeting the disease at its source. And that is what acaramidus seeks to do, is to fully stabilize the destabilized tetramer by copying that rescue mutation. And the reason it's different than the other stabilizer that's out on the marketplace is that stabilizer was designed before the known action of that transalytic transoppressor mutation. And so it's about a 50% stabilizer. This you can think of for a variety of reasons that we can get into as closer to a 100% stabilizer that really 40-fold increases the activation energy between uh, full tetramer and dimer and glues that tetramer together. So, Neil, explain uh, the study results uh, for us that you guys announced this week. Yeah, so, you know, trying to apply the the molecular theory here, what we sought to do was to put this um, hyperstabilizing molecule uh, in the context of a clinical population and study its effects on um, the two key outcomes um, in the disease, really, which are mortality and CV hospitalization. And um, what we found is we have a, a relatively complicated primary endpoint called the win ratio. Um, we hit on that primary endpoint with a p-value of less than 0. 0.0001. Um, and that is effectively a hierarchical uh, measure of mortality and morbidity. And then at a high level, we found patients surviving more and going to the hospital less than we've ever seen before in the context of this condition. So that was quite heartening. On the survival side, we saw 81% survival. Uh, with a 25% relative risk reduction. 81% survival over 30 months is pretty close for this population to what life looks like without ATTR cardiomyopathy. If you do an actuarial study, these are 77-year-olds, uh, me and 77-year-olds on our trial with significant comorbidities like AFib, uh, type 2 diabetes, and hypertension. So 85% is about as best as you could do, 81% survival rate. 
um, is, is quite heartening. And then you couple that with almost a 50% relative risk reduction in hospitalization. And I, I think, um, you know, those results uh, were, were quite exciting to us and, the, and I think will be to the clinical community as well. Let's like home in on the mortality benefit that you mentioned there, because obviously a 25% relative risk reduction uh, in terms of risk of death is like very meaningful, but it missed statistical significance. Wow, say that five times fast. Uh, is that correct? And so how do you kind of look at the strength of that finding? Yeah, so th- these trials are, are not designed um, to hit StatSig on mortality alone. In fact, uh, that's a very difficult endeavor in almost any um, in almost any cardiovascular disease. And the reason for that is the event rates are very light. And that's, I think, why a lot of people were concerned about the trial. Certainly, we were a little worried about the trial, because if you look at a decade ago, when Pfizer ran their trial, events rates were quite a bit higher. And so the ability for you to have the deterioration of a placebo that allowed you to demonstrate big deltas between on-drug and off-drug arm um, were, were present. I mean, I'll give you a, a little bit of a color there. Our placebo outperformed the on-drug arm of um, what Tefaminis showed a decade ago in the Pfizer Attract trial. So you just had a very limited number of events. So even with a um, meaningful separation that I think from a point estimate standpoint, people find extraordinarily meaningful, 25% relative risk reduction, but also importantly, an over 6% absolute risk reduction. So that, you know, can have 25%, but, you know, very, very small absolute risk reduction. 6% is six plus percent here um, is quite clinically meaningful. Um, but we, we we never really expected to hit a p-value there and uh, did not. So to your point about there being some concern uh, going into this trial, maybe a little understated, not necessarily concern, but at least attention, um, both, you know, for BridgeBio, a company with a multitude of drugs in development, but this one, at least in in, uh, in the eyes of Wall Street and, and, and people externally, was a massive proving opportunity for the company. We mentioned before that there was a negative result from an earlier phase of the trial, uh, in 2021. So going into that with all of that momentum and um, this result coming out, I was curious, how did you hear about the study results? What were you doing? What was your reaction when you got what I assume is is the call that you had met the primary endpoint? I was um, at my desk uh, waiting uh, attentively because I knew I would get it uh, uh, late that day. And honestly, my first feeling was um, gratitude. Um, the ability to serve these patients, I think is a big deal. And then uh, just just an intense amount. It, it's true of any um, condition that we work in at Bridge Bio. It's sort of, uh, but but for the grace of the clinical community and um, patients and their families g- goes the company, and um, was the case here. We ran this trial through COVID. Um, you know, if you look at the discontinuation rates, one of the things that I found very impressive was the discontinuation rates on this trial, despite the setback on Part A, despite COVID were lower than we've seen in prior trials in this space. And so that's a testament to the courageous patients and the wonderful physician community that we got to work with. And I was happy for the IDOS teams. So Neil, you mentioned uh, Pfizer, which sells the drug to treat uh, ATTR cardiomyopathy. Uh, it was approved in 2019 and it's, and it's become a, a blockbuster product. Uh, Alnylam Pharmaceuticals is also developing a medicine to treat the disease. How, how does your drug stack up against these uh, competitors? Yeah, great question. So um, just returning back to the path and mechanism of the disease, you've got tetramer falling apart to dimer, dimer going to monomer. That toxic monomer is clumping together and depositing in the heart. All of us are trying to reduce the amount of that toxic monomer. So what stabilizers do, both Pfizer and our drug, is we sort of turn the faucet of the toxic monomer off 
And you can think about the knockdown agents like uh, patisseran, vitrucerin, and uh, inotercin, uh, which is Ionis and AZ's drug, as kind of ripping the whole sink apparatus out. And um, both have the same consequence, which is to reduce the amount of toxic monomer. In the case of us versus Pfizer, the design paradigm was that we wanted to be a 100% better stabilizer. So their stabilization rates are at around 50%. The molecule was designed in an era where they were unsure as to whether or not full stabilization might drive serum TTR levels too high up. It just turns out that, as I mentioned, that rescue mutation suggested in the in the context of actual human clinical genetics that that can't be the case and that more stabilization should lead to better benefit for patients. We also saw that, by the way, in the Pfizer clinical trial where their high dose 80 mg outperformed their lower dose 20 mg. And so at 50% stabilization, our goal was to, at 24 hours a day, stabilize above 95%. And that's really where the difference of acronamidus versus tefamidus comes in, is higher levels of stabilization. And as you saw um, in some of our post hoc exploratory analyses, materially higher levels of stabilization in an apples to apples comparison in a phase three clinical trial here as measured by serum TTR levels. So that's really the goal of the, of the small molecule. And then the question is, how do you think about the knockdowns versus small molecules? And again, um, what you can see from the polyneuropathy clinical trial experience is the same amount of stabilization is approximately tantamount to the same amount of knockdown. And if you work the biochemistry through, uh, you can see why when one looks at the objective function of reduction of toxic monomers. So if I start with 10 tetramers, I eliminate seven of them, three of them are still producing toxic monomer, or I stabilize seven of them. This isn't a formal STATMEC view, but you could think about it roughly that way. And three of them are still producing toxic monomer. Either way, I get roughly the same clinical result. You see that from the inotercin trial in polyneuropathy as compared to a 70% stabilizer called diflunosol. So we're sort of doing the same thing. It's just that we're preserving the tetramer TTR. And we believe that's important um, because not only does it transport vitamin to the eye, there is also no human that's haploinsufficient or null for it, no species that's null for it, and it's one of the more abundant proteins in your body. So why not keep that tetramer around if you can, delivering the same level of efficacy um, by reducing the toxic monomer? So, so all of those medicines are acting upstream, if you will, and all trying to do the same thing. There are a separate class of medicines that are antibodies that um, have recently started to enter the clinic. There was a, a, a really nice New England Journal paper on the first of these trials um, a couple of months ago, that actually seek to clear the already deposited amyloidotic plaque in the heart. So you can think about this almost like the Alzheimer's um, antibodies. So those bind to the deposited plaque and um, drive immune-mediated clearance. So they, those could be a nice combination. You could think about stabilizers or knockdowns as preventing any more deposition. And then you could think about antibodies kind of clearing out what is already deposited at the time of disease. So we're making great strides here um, across the therapeutic um, landscape. Can you talk about the pricing dynamics for this disease a little bit? Uh, we understand Pfizer's drug is, you know, maybe, is it $225,000 per year? And so that's sort of rare disease drug pricing. But this disease is sort of becoming more common, perhaps, than thought. So how are you thinking about pricing both, you know, as appropriate for the disease itself and then also relative, perhaps, to Pfizer? Too early to say precisely how um, we're thinking about pricing, but I think we've been pretty vocal all along in saying that, um, you know, we have a we have a pretty strong focus on um, global patient access. And I actually think that hospitalization data that I mentioned at the outset, that 50% relative risk reduction, which is dramatic as compared to what's been demonstrated um, prior to 
uh, will help us also make a, a, a meaningful value argument in um, the context of, let's say, uh, Europe and, and European payers. Um, but yes, you're right. I think the Pfizer drug's a little over $280,000. I think the Alnilam drug is a little over $400,000. Um, so very expensive uh, medicines. Uh, I mean, we can geek out on this a little a little bit, but there's a little bit of an odd dynamic in the U.S. here right now because one's Medicare Part B and one's Medicare Part D, and hospitals make a lot more money on Medicare Part B drugs, and there's also a limited copay on Medicare Part D. Um, things are a little different, where obviously um, the the copay is now some fourteen thousand plus dollars, I think, for um, to famous patients. That goes away um, in the presence of the Inflation Reduction Act. So I think Inflation Reduction Act will improve access to these life saving medicines. Um, but right now, I think thirty to forty percent or so of scripts is at last um, at last announcement from Pfizer are not are going unfilled because Medicare Part D patients simply can't afford um, that type of annual cost. So zooming out and, and kind of going back to 2019, uh, the the first word that came to mind was Odyssey, which I've, I've been incepted by the classics um, thanks to the beginning of this conversation. But um, you know, the story on, on Bridge Bio, at least as I was first acquainted with it, was this kind of like Moneyball biotech operation, a company that would pursue... Um, you know, genetically validated targets for potentially small, likely small patient populations, probably relatively small markets with respect to what pharmaceutical companies would look like as a worthwhile investment, but do enough of them such that you could build a company to scale on what would be a drug conceivably too small for the likes of, for example, Pfizer, AstraZeneca to really invest in it. That kind of got interrupted by the seemingly increasing prevalence of ATTR with cardiomyopathy. And as such, acaramidus became like this home run swing for you guys. I'm extending this baseball metaphor far beyond my actual knowledge of baseball. Um, and so that was kind of the story in 2019 until, you know, as we mentioned, the setback um, that you had in the, in the first part of this phase three study. So I guess I'm curious, I mean, how is that reaching for a word of the Nagasi? How is that saga played out for you, both in terms of you know, the adjustment perhaps that the company kind of made in its thinking going into that first phase to dealing with the setback to getting all the way to this week and the positive data from the second phase? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's so many um, different answers in there. I mean, I think when we started the company, the whole thesis was there were all these great single asset ideas that targeted well-described diseases, genetic diseases at their source that were kind of sitting with academics or sitting in their minds and they weren't being prosecuted, um, especially if they didn't fit some large, um, you know, VC-like uh, platform, like it wasn't gene therapy for the brain or CRISPR for the eye or something like that, but it was a small molecule for Gorlin syndrome or a small molecule for achondroplasia or what, or what have you. And so we tried to progress all of those forward in a diversified way, in a decentralized way, staying very lean so that each program could basically, and our, and our cost structure could allow us to go into very small patient populations. And over time, what we found was, yeah, most of what we do are small patient populations, but every once in a while, you'll strike a large market. Um, ATTR is one of them. Achondroplasia, for instance, is another one of them. I know you and I have, have talked about that in, in the past. And so, you know, and then what happens um, from a financing standpoint is that all of Wall Street focuses, number one, on large markets and number two, on markets that they know. Right. We have we have late stage drugs in, in areas like limb girdle, muscular dystrophy type 2i that I believe um, are big, but in terms of unmet need and, and they could be big in terms of a market. 
Um, but because they're non-competitive, Wall Street tends not to focus on them as much. So the diversification of the portfolio falls apart uh, when the equity markets tend to just focus on one or another program. And, and really the way that the, that the model should have been run, if I had uh, the skills to do this, would have been to raise $2 billion and say, everyone, hey, go away, uh, you know, come back in 14 years and you'll have on a risk adjusted basis a 15% return. But, you know, I, instead of raising $2 billion to start, I could only raise $7 million. And, you know, we've had to build it up over time. And therefore, this diverse, thing that over a long period of time should look fairly placid is exposed to these waves of, um, you know, the vicissitudes of the public markets and also the vicissitudes associated with failure and uh, success of any, of any given program. And, and so, yeah, I think 18 months ago when we were faced with Part A, um, the diversification model started to, it got stretched to its limits. And the thing I'm proudest of um you know, you can't really see it in any in any metric, I suppose, is really our performance in 2022, where we were able to carry forward a lot of programs that most biotechs were not doing anymore. Like, for instance, we have six of six patients responding in a very rare disease called Canavan disease and um, some really beautiful results. And we were um, we were able to keep those trials going because we had some of these other larger trials ongoing as well. So I think the diversification helped us to survive, but we weren't thriving. We were just, we were just surviving. <laughs> so Neil, uh, tell us what's next for Bridge Bio and, and please provide your answer in the form of a Homeric poem. <laughs> uh, I, I can't do that, but uh, <laughs> hopefully but what's next for Bridge Bio is, um, you know, continued excellence in, in discovery and development. We have um, four ongoing large phase three studies and um, my hope is on a risk-adjusted basis, a, a few of those deliver great results for patients um, in, in things like achondroplasia, ADH1, LGMD2I. And then we have a lot of discovery uh, ongoing as well. So I hope we're able to continue to move the engine forward and, and provide solutions for patients in, in large and small markets. And then obviously we're, we're looking at a big transition here, going from a development company to a development plus commercial company. And my hope has always been from the get-go that because this isn't a single asset company that's just set up to, you know, get to some place and, and sell or someplace and just completely maximize the value of, of one asset because that's all we have. My hope is that we can responsibly market um, this medicine and, and set a track record for ourselves so that we can do it again and again and, and build a, a sustainable company over time. Yeah, I don't know if that's too general, but that's that's kind of my hope. Neil, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Embanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and your choice of Greek Homeric poems. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week.
Rec, rang, rag, neg, Rum, rum, tum, 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 t